2: Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Roll Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Michael Azarad joins Nate to discuss Our Band Could Be Your Life and the 80s punk underground that spawned legendary bands like Black Flag, Minor Threat, Sonic Youth, The Butthole Surfers, and Fugazi. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Today I'm
3: joined by Michael Azarab, author of Our Band Could Be Your Life, Scenes from the American Indie Underground, 1981 to 1991. Michael, welcome.
0: Thank you, Nate. Great to be here.
3: Yeah, and so the book's coming out in audiobook format.
0: Yes, uh, yeah, it just came out and um, uh, I read uh, parts of it, I read the introduction and the epilogue and I read the Fugazi chapter, but other than that, I had guest readers, people who were inspired by uh the band in each particular chapter
3: it's quite an a-list uh arsenal i have to say hearing fred Arneston reading this was pretty uh epic
0: <laughs> yeah it was funny i yeah i i was you know i took a lot of care in, in casting these things and uh i people tell me the butthole surfers chapter is funny so I, I tried to think of someone who's funny who was somehow inspired by the butthole surfers and fred came to mind and he uh and he agreed to do it. And that was really great.
3: Yeah, it was awesome. And so to me, that sort of reflects the success that this book has had and sort of planting a flag for what was a very neglected scene at the time and what still is kind of a pretty neglected scene if you look at how the stories are being told.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the I mean that's why I even wrote the book in the first place is because I was watching a, I think it was like a time life, <laughs> you know, a history of... Uh, of rock music on uh, the, it was like a eight, eight VHS tape set uh, back when this is back when there were still VHS tapes. And, uh, you know, it, it started out with whatever Chuck Berry and all that stuff. And, you know, on through these uh, different chapters and it finally gets to punk rock and they talk about the sex pistols and maybe the clash and stuff like that. And then it gets, to, Oh, and then they go to talking heads and then it skips from talking heads to Nirvana. And um, you know, I, I thought I'd lost consciousness for about ten minutes and I, I missed the part about American indie rock in the eighties with bands like, you know, Who's do and and the replacements and Sonic Youth, these, you know, pretty important bands, uh, who were the bridge between though, you know, the original punk bands and Nirvana, uh, yeah. historically and, you know, musically in many ways. And uh but no, you know, they just ignored this huge chunk of musical history that was really influential and important and interesting. And I said, someone should do something about this. And then in typical DIY fashion, I decided that I should do something about it. And that's how the book started. So, yeah, it's been written out, you know, and it kind of still is. Although, you know, there have been a lot of books, uh, you know, about the band's that I briefly, relatively briefly, profiled in the book. I mean, there were replacements books and Sonic Youth books and all kinds of things uh, that came out largely after my book. So it, you know that that wrong is being corrected.
3: Glad and thank you for for your efforts in doing that, and we're making our own small contribution here. And you start the book or in the frontispiece. There's a quote from William Blake: "I must create a system or be enslaved by another man's." Yeah. Why did you pick that quote?
0: Um, because that kind of encapsulates, uh, uh, you know, one of the major themes of the book, which is that these bands were making music that the major label system was not prepared to embrace. So they had to create their own system. They had to create their own record labels, their own, um, you know, uh, touring, uh, circuit, they had to create their own record stores and and radio stations and uh, and uh, and magazines, fanzines. They had to do all those things so that they could make the music that they wanted to make, and and the people who wanted to hear that music could hear it. And so they created this second reality, you know, this is parallel universe of all those media. Like I say. Uh, fanzines radio stations um record stores all those things i consider you know media basically and so those uh that was the that was the the new system uh that that had to build so this music could be heard and played and you
3: started the introduction with a quote from gina arnold the journalist saying we won and that network you're referring to is the we in that question and and she was talking about when nirvana's Nevermind knocked um Michael Jackson off the number 1 album on the album charts. Mm-hmm. Do you still feel like I mean, there's two things that come out of that. Do you do you think that's true to any extent? Did we win and is commercial success the only metric to validate
0: winning? Um well, I'll take the um well, I'll take it in reverse order, I guess. Um you know, uh, no, I, I don't think. I think that was one of the great ideas of this whole underground, you know, indie movement that I, I wrote about in this book. Is that no commercial success wasn't necessarily validation. Um, that uh, you know there was something else that you could do. <laughs> you know, part of the uh, a great uh, uh, aspect of the validation in that scene was just the fact that you could keep doing what you wanted to do. And that's not something that's a luxury. I think uh, that not a lot of people in any walk of life have, where you get to do uh, what you want to do exactly the way uh, you want to do it uh, over the long term. Actually, there's a quote there's uh, from Lee Ronaldo about this very thing um, in the book, and and here it is. <laughs> uh, he said. People realized there was a way to do it in a very underground, low-key way that still counted and was still important. People got this idea that ultimately what mattered was the quality of what you were doing and how much importance you gave to it, regardless of how widespread it became or how many records it sold. And, you know, that sums it up uh, as, you know, as well as I possibly could, probably better. <laughs> uh, but, but the, you know, the we One thing, uh, well you know yeah, that was kind of a mi- mixed uh uh blessing because all of a sudden that music got um you know mainstreamed and um, you know in some ways became a laughing stock but on the other hand, you know in the night 90- it also opened up an incredible um uh, uh, era in indie music I mean the 90s had some amazing and beyond had some amazing records by actually I'm writing actually a profile of Mac McCon <laughs> right now for my, my college alumni magazine. We went to the same college and i'm just i have merge on my mind his record label i mean um superchunk um uh magnetic fields uh you know all those uh, a lot of bands just on merge or all, all those sub pop bands from the nineties that was that was a win you know all of a sudden these bands making really interesting music, challenging music that for the most part, the major labels wouldn't touch were selling, uh, a lot of records and people were hearing some really cool music. So, uh, that, that infrastructure, that system that I was talking about earlier, it did win. It's, it's, it succeeded. Um, you know, it's a double edged sword. There was some, a lot of crappy music that was foisted on people mostly by the major labels trying to piggyback on this phenomenon. But the indie labels like sub pop and, uh, matador and merge in the nineties, um, really capitalized on all that work and put out some amazing records matador uh you know pavement guided by voices uh liz fair there's you know tons and tons of great records came out of that that decade
3: absolutely and i think one of the important things was that for future bands like the white strikes or the strokes or the hives or green day or the offspring this there in the 80s there was this line of you're either potentially commercially acceptable or you're just not and all the bands in this book basically took that bet and said okay we won't be commercially acceptable that's not going to be in the cards for us but after nirvana and and the big breakthrough in the early 90s basically any band that has the potential could be seen so that pipeline is still open to some extent um and and one thing you talk about the double-edged sword and in your introduction you you compare it to the to the folk movement in the 60s and the way that 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 movement was kind of killed by its own popularity and and you know dylan goes electric and the thing dies mm. do you still view that as a valid comparison uh
0: well uh uh the i mean the comparisons that i the the parallels that i make are um uh that both uh movements and i would say you know it's is that both of those things were beyond music and up at the movement level were, uh, really prided themselves on, uh, authenticity, um, uh, being an outsider to, uh, you know, uh, crass, you know, commercial, uh, considerations. Um, there was certainly a populist angle to them. Um, uh, folk music had, had this, the ideological side to it and, and, uh, indie rock, for a long time, had a very anti-corporate um, ideology. So uh, those uh, those parallels for sure existed in the '80s. But you know, now um, now we you know the things we call indie rock. Indie rock is now a musical genre. <laughs> it's not actually a, a fiscal designation. It, originally, indie meant that the label was not distributed by one of the majors. Uh, the major distributors which um is a, a a huge commercial disadvantage you can't get your music into stores and if you can't get your music into stores it won't get played on commercial radio but now uh you know now uh if you say something is indie rock it may be on a major label and it may have all kinds of commercial advantages through um you know high powered management and and distribution promotion and things like that so um yeah uh i mean we could talk on and on about i guess about the devaluation of the word <laughs> yeah. indie but i you know i, I don't think that uh, people um pay almost i don't think they pay any attention frankly to the fiscal dis- distinction of what indie means anymore
3: but in the 80s it was very, very important and you focused the book basically on four indie labels SST discord touch and go and sub pop and we'll talk about why you picked those in a minute but first i want to play a snippet from the first band we're going to talk about and this is black flags nervous breakdown black flag's nervous breakdown and that's the book the first song released by the first band that you chose to talk about and and Mm. picking black flag to start this because um there's sort of a case that you could could have started it with rem although in the introduction you say well they were distributed by or they were on irs which was distributed by a major label so they're disqualified Mm. but you know they were touring the same clubs and and building up a lot of the same audience or similar audiences but you chose to pick black flag which was a sort of a statement i mean they were a hardcore band talk a little bit about what that meant in the 80s and, and the importance of starting with the hardcore band
0: um uh you know uh you know talking about you know creating your own system that's what black flag did uh they you know greg ginn the leader of black flag had you know there was just no place to release the music that he wanted to release so he created his own label and uh, there were no places to there the, 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 it's hard to explain or it's hard to convey like how few places there were for bands playing original music uh to play across the united states it it just it was very rare you either a cover band playing you know in a bar um or uh you were you know an arena band there was really not much uh, on the lower end for just original punk bands to play. So Black Flag, uh, along with a couple of other bands, um, uh, really blazed that trail in terms of uh, venues uh, across the country. They just found places to play, and those places realized, wow, we can get an audience. Let's have some more punk bands play. And pretty soon they became punk venues. And this, they were sort of these these Johnny Appleseeds all over the, the country. Uh, so I, uh, you know, and SST, I think was the first really big independent American independent label of that decade. They really, um, they hosted, you know, they had these, in, in several really, really important bands the Minutemen, who's dude, uh, the meat puppets and, um, later dinosaur junior and so on and so on really, really influential, very successful label that, Blaze trails not just in terms of venues but in terms of you know retail figuring they helped build uh, an independent distribution system and so on so um they black flag were pioneers black flag and sst pioneered a whole bunch of stuff that made all the rest of the bands in the book possible <sighs>
3: And, and one of the key, the key inflection point in the Black Flag narrative is their battle with a major label. And they ended up, mm. after they started SST, they, they sort of realized they were topping out with Damaged, which was an immensely important album and, and was bubbling under in a way that, at the time, it looked like, wow, this could be a breakout hit. And so they partnered up with uh, an MCA subsidiary called Unicorn Records. And what happened with that?
0: Uh, well, basically it goes sour, <laughs> you know, um, uh, you know, they, uh, they just, they got, uh, really badly burned, uh, by that deal and, and got, um, tied up, uh, in a lot of legal shenanigans and couldn't release records and all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, that was a pretty tough lesson. Uh, uh, I don't think that they, uh, you know, <laughs> would ever do that again, uh, I, I'm not exactly sure why they thought that was a good idea aside from getting their records into stores, you know, but that, that kind of proves the, the point that, um, that the distri- the distribution system for independent music was really lacking. And anybody who had major distribution had, you know, serious advantages, um, very sizable, uh, commercial advantages, which again, you know, uh, is why, um, I, I had to exclude REM, partially because so many books have been written about them already. I ju- would just be treading over their yeah. familiar territory. But also, um, like I say, their their records were in stores. Their their music, and so uh, radio paid attention to them. They REM opened for the police uh, because their the the guy who ran their record label was the brother, of the guy who managed the police. They they were so connected. They had so many advantages which is not to take away from their genius musically and their um uh, profound and sustained hard work um and and you know <laughs> the, the suffering uh, they endured um uh, you know by touring so hard but they did in for the for the sake of this book um it's an important distinction that they had some uh Some serious advantages that uh, a band like Black Flag, for instance, simply did not have. Um, But, you know, hardcore um, was uh, a very uncompromising style of music. And, uh, you know, again, it kind of proves the point. Well, if there's no place for this kind of music, we have to make a place for it. And that's what Greg Ginn did.
3: Absolutely. And 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 we're gonna have to jump through to the next band because there's so many to cover and I want to touch on all of them um at least briefly. And the second band you go into is the Minutemen, who mm-hmm. are also on SST and in a way a little brother band of Black Flag, but they weren't exactly hardcore. Was that why you picked them? Because of their musical differences with Black Flag? Or because uh, of the Tori Nicano philosophy that they articulated?
0: Uh, oh, I, I, um, oh, I, I chose uh, the Minutemen uh, because they're, they, well, they, it was their term, jamming econo. Uh, in, in other words, uh, c- conducting uh, your career in such a way that um, it, it, uh, you never, as uh, Mike Watt said, you never build a tent that's too big for your show. And that means that uh, you will never hit a jackpot, that you can have a long and sustainable career you will never be in debt to anybody. You, uh, you run things close to the ground, you know, you fix your own van, (laughs) you carry your own equipment and, um, and you can play to, you know, 50 people a night and still perhaps, you know, make some money and keep doing what you want to do. And that was an incredibly inspiring ethos to so many bands. And so, uh, 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 I don't think anyone tried to imitate the Minutemen, but the idea that you could go out and make such crazy, unique music um, and, and have it be sustainable was uh, a, a real uh, model for, for so many other bands. So, you know, that that's... Uh, and, you know, Mike Watt and, and Dee Boone, the, the bass player and uh, guitarist, respectively, of Minutemen, you know, were just, you know, kind of the the revolutionary theoreticians of this... <laughs> Of this whole thing, so they, you know, they absolutely uh, merited a, a place in the book, and they were incredibly influential to people who made music that sounded nothing like them. Uh, for instance, uh, in the audiobook, uh, the reader for that chapter is Jeff Tweedy from Wilco. Uh, Wilco, uh, I, you know, I defy anyone to <laughs> yeah, much of the Minutemen and Wilco, <laughs> um, but uh, but. The Minutemen inspired Jeff Tweedy, um, uh, to, you know, to a profound degree. He, you know, Google it. <laughs> uh, he he talks about them a lot, very reverentially. So reverently. So um, uh, you know that that kind of influence and that kind of you know power across you know now decades is uh, that's certainly worth uh, documenting.
3: Absolutely, and then the next band that you threw in there was Mission of Burma from mm. Boston, mm-hmm. who were definitely a post-punk band, but in no way, shape, or form a hardcore band. What's the what's the rationale for including them?
0: Uh, well, Mission of Burma, um, yeah, they were a post-punk band, but I think they took some uh, some inspiration, as did Sonic Youth, from uh, hardcore. And again, you know, that kind of harks back to uh, the influence of Black Flag and, and this idea that you can make. You could be inspired by a band but not sound like them, uh, a really key concept that, again, plays out in the audiobook. You have you know a lot of people in this book who um, were uh, inspired uh, by the, the band they're reading about but don't sound like them. For instance, uh, Sharon Van Etten um, reads the Dinosaur Jr. chapter. So um, Mission at Burma, uh, partially – well, I'm partially there in the book because um, – uh, they were from Boston, you know, and I want to have some, you know, Boston's pretty big hotbed of, uh, you know, indie rock uh, in that era. Um, but also because they started, uh, uh, along with Who's Du, they blended this idea of noise and melody. And uh, that that was a huge thing, you know, that, of course, led up to Nirvana. And so, you know, part of this book is the idea um uh, the idea that these bands were a backstory to the nirvana story, like you know where did Nirvana come from? Um, you know what how did we win <laughs> you know what was the what were all the battles that were fought before the uh, nirvana you know quote unquote won the war so uh just you know musically, mission of burma uh is, is part of that lineage, that idea of um really loud guitars and noise with uh with melody in there. Uh, you could also throw in the Pixies um, as part of that equation. Another Boston band, as it turns out. So, yeah, they were musically influential. They were also incredibly resourceful. There's a uh, a passage in uh, in their chapter where they they take advantage of uh, this uh, travel deal. They uh, they do a U.S. tour completely by airplane, <laughs> which is really quite an amazing thing. Again, for a band who's probably playing to you know a hundred people a night. But Eastern, I think it was Eastern Airlines had this deal where you could fly, you pay a, a some sort of flat amount and you can fly anywhere in the US for a month, uh, provided that you fly through their hub so, somewhere, I forget where it was. So Mission of Burma would play, you know, Cleveland and then fly back to whatever the hub was and then fly out to Los Angeles or wherever. And, um, you know, they spent a lot of time in that flight lounge in, in the whatever that hub airport was. So there's this... You know this resourcefulness that um that they also embody but a lot of it is the the noise and melody and and boston and um you know the uh uh oh and also their their sound guy uh martin swope who um was kind of a a member of the band but was not on stage he was actually at the board at the front of house that was also really really interesting and um you know various other bands kind of picked up on that idea later on too so yeah i don't know they were just a really really interesting band that i think was musically uh influential
3: absolutely and and swope was doing tape loops and things he wasn't just a sound man so he's actually adding to the sound kind of in the way Brian Eno added to roxy music um with a different text set up but let's go ahead and hear um mission of burma uh that's when i reach for my revolver Was Mr. Bermis. That's when I reached for my revolver. And that was a record that was put out by a Boston indie called Ace of Hearts. And it was also picked up by Boston Radio. Talk a little bit about Boston Radio and, and what was unique about it at, in the country at that time, that it was playing local artists and keeping the region. It was one of the last regional scenes with an active local radio presence.
0: Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, they really supported their local bands. Um, and they, they were cool enough. A lot of these local stations were cool enough to play tapes didn't actually have to have a record. You could just play, uh, you could just send a tape to the radio station and they would uh, play that. And so there was a very uh, great scene there. There's another great band from uh, Boston around that time called the Neats. Um, uh, tons of bands. And it was a very uh, localized scene. Not a whole lot of bands uh, broke out of that scene, uh, except for M- Mission of Bourbon and, 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 like I say, the Pixies. But it's a really great example of um, a music scene that can arise because, um, for, first of all, I, you know, part of the point of this book is to show that great music can come from anywhere. It doesn't have to come from New York or Los Angeles. The, the, uh, there's, there are talented people everywhere, and they just need a platform. They need the infrastructure. They need, you know, record stores to sell their music. They need venues to where they can play they need a radio station who will play their music uh and they need people who will go who, who will consume all those things and uh boston is a great case in point there it's it's not it's not known as a you know artistic you know hub um although great music has come out of there and it like i say it was it came out of there because um the people who were talented were you know enabled by uh, a lot of infrastructure. Another great example of that is Seattle. Seattle was, you know, up until, you know, late 80s, I guess, was considered a place where they uh, made airplanes and tucked away in the upper corner of the country and maybe uh, did some logging up there too. Not considered an artistic bastion, but um, a couple of entrepreneurs uh, just decided they were going to make it into something, and they did. And it turned out there were a lot of talented people there. They just needed a, a you know, a platform. So uh, yeah, uh, those Boston radio stations were part of that that spirit. That idea that, you know, there can be really thriving regional scenes.
3: And another regional scene was Washington D.C. And and you picked um, Minor Threat, and then later Fugazi, uh, sort of a second reincarnation of Minor Threat. Or at least they had the same frontman. Um, and Minor Threat's definitely back to hardcore and but but Ian Mackay really elaborates on the DIY ethos with with his discord records which they start with $900 from their first band the teen idols and choose to document it and and so many of the themes of the book and the scene come through a minor threat but to me sort of the fascinating thing is Mackay articulates this straight edge philosophy which sort of becomes a albatross around his neck, but has this, there's still a straight edge scene, you know, 30 years later, 30, almost 40 years later. Mm. And at the initial days, he had what he called an ideology of violence. So even though this is a very bright, well-educated middle class group of kids Mm. at the time with minor threat, they're absolutely into the hardcore thing and see violence as a positive good. Talk about that a little bit and how, and why they ultimately disavowed that.
0: Um, you know, I I would actually up their class. A lot of these kids were upper middle class. Good you know? point.
3: Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, Sons but, of senators and and marginal man, for example.
0: For example, yeah, or you know, maybe someone's dad worked at the you know the World Bank or something. You know, uh, it's you know that level. You know, that's that comes with the territory in um, uh, you know certain precincts of Washington D.C. You you have people who are you know civil servants and you know. Uh, quite um, accomplished people, uh, but you know, violence. Um, it's interesting. You know, that is, uh, it's a real chicken and egg thing. I mean, hardcore, of course, is very violent sounding, and yet, um, you know, you talk to people about it, and, and they'll say, "I don't, you know, I don't think it's violent at all." I feel actually, <laughs> um, I was, I one time I was talking to Dave Grohl around in the during the nirvana era and i said wow you hit the drum so hard uh you must really you know and i <laughs> i'm a drummer too and i i knew it was a dumb thing to say but i said it anyway i said it must feel good to to get your aggressions out and he he said oh i don't feel that way at all I, when i play i just feel really joyous he's he didn't feel like he was you know being aggressive at all um so you know and early hardcore was kind of like that um there were you know if you read that chapter, you know, there were lots of women in the audience and they're all slam dancing and, you know, pe- maybe people would fall down and they get picked up. But, you know, uh later, you know, or pretty soon, a lot of, you know, really kind of thuggish guys started swarming in and, and becoming much more violent and um and not so cooperative. And that's, you know, that's when it uh, it started to go downhill, um, you know, on, on a social level. Uh, but. I, you know, I, I think that's a natural human reaction. If someone, you know, physically attacks you, (laughs) you're going to retaliate. And the, those hardcore kids looked really strange, especially in Washington, DC. if you want to talk about a, a a city that is not renowned, you know, for its, uh, you know, creative, uh, community, Washington, DC is, is definitely it. And again, um, in Mackay, um, you know showed that really there can be creativity anywhere but those kids looked very different <clears throat> and were subject to a lot of abuse and uh and, i mean i guess they could have thing- they could have done the gandhi thing and done passive resistance yeah. I like guess. uh but i mean the natural reaction especially when you're a teenager when you're someone physically attacks you <laughs> is to uh retaliate and, and that's something i think it's important
3: to point out to people today who weren't around in that era it was much more violent every metric of crime rates and everything it was much more violent and people really cared about what scene you presented yourself as part of or how you presented yourself and if you you know these days i mean people are getting beat up for different reasons um and some old ugly reasons in this country but it's sort of strange to think that you could get beat up for wearing a leather jacket or having a mo- mo- mohawk. But that was the case. I mean, almost anywhere in the country, you would be singled out uh, for some you know harassment with that. and And that was definitely a thing. But we got to race through because I do want to hit on. Um who's and the replacements a little bit who came out of Minneapolis. And one was on SST, Who's Good and another was on Twin and Talk a little bit about the different ways that Hooskidoo and the replacements interacted with this scene. Uh
0: well, uh Who's was uh very much into hardcore. <clears throat> they were um very much into the network that um that had, was springing up in the wake of SST. People trading information and <clears throat> about you know where to sleep and where to play. Um, they were part of a network, and the replacements were more of um, like a more of an old school style band where they just wanted to party and have a manager take care of stuff. And they made a token hardcore album because that was <coughs> excuse me, um, you know that was kind of like. That was the music that was around them but they didn't really you know mean it <laughs> too much and they later went to a much more conventional sounding rock music whereas Hoosker do uh you know played extremely fast and it was um uh, uh you know pretty innovative uh music at the time uh and consequently very influential whereas you know the replacements uh you know you could tell that they listened to a lot of faces and rolling stones and uh, on one of their albums they covered a kiss song so they were they were in they were a more conventional sounding and behaving band even though they participated in this you know this indie uh, community uh being on twin tone um which was a much more conventional label than sst uh it was run by uh, uh a recording engineer i think and uh, a couple of couple of other people whereas sst was uh, very punk and artist run
3: and yet who's could is kind of the band where the worm turns on sst they're the first band that gets into open conflict with sst and that acrimony has continued through the decades uh
0: yes well yeah i mean uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of bands had acrimony with sst and you know fought to get their masters back and had all kinds of disputes uh, about money um and that's just really unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I guess that's, uh, do, I guess was the first to bail, uh, to a major label. And that was, um, you know, we were talking about authenticity and anti-corporate, you know, ideology, uh, that, you know, that was kind of a, a seismic thing. When people Yeah,
3: who's went to Warner's and the replacements went to Sire right around the same time. And like you, you talk about, in the book, there was a brief window where that major label deals get these bands access to TV shows. So for a brief while, you're catching these bands on TV, but it didn't really catch. Was it just premature, or were these the wrong bands? Or what do you think that, that the Nirvana thing didn't happen in 86 instead of 91?
0: Mm, uh, I, I there's a David Bowie said this great, great thing. Um, and I've never been able to find the source of it, but I definitely remember seeing him say this in a documentary. He said, it's not who does it first, it's who does it second. And the pioneers almost never hit it. It's 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 They kind of soften the ground for the people who come next. And, uh, uh, you know, people like The Replacements and Who's Could Do and all the bands in Now Our Bank Could Be Your Life c- created this, you know, like a... a you know they they were the shoulders upon which you know nirvana and soundgarden and all those other bands uh stood so that's um you know that's the that's the fate of the pioneer you know the the icebreaker yeah <laughs> you, you take it on the nose and the people who follow uh, have a much easier time
3: and then I want to segue into the next wave of bands, and and first I'm going to play a, a song snippet from one of those. This is the Butthole Surfers moving to, to
2: Florida. Floor, my legs down in Florida. And I'm going to dance a one-legged
1: off in the rain. Well will be seeing the Sydney foot heels blind, man.
3: And I was the Butthole Surfers, who, uh, along with Sonic Youth and Big Black, in here sort of represent a wave of bands that, really, for lack of a better term, Robert Crisca called them "pigfuck bands," which is a pretty awful genre title. I don't think any of the bands liked it. Um, but what was different about this wave of bands—the Buttholes, Big Black, Sonic Youth—from what had come before?
0: Uh Well, uh, they didn't sound like uh, stereotypical punk rock, but I would argue that they were totally punk rock. It's just that they took uh, the, the sensibility of how how to be punk rock and applied it to different kinds of music. And sure, Sonic Youth was sure inspired by hardcore and um, uh, butthole surfers for sure. I'm uh, sure Big Black, but they made music that didn't sound like it. And they were they were you know enabled they were liberated and inspired by this whole scene to do their own thing and and again that scene had created infrastructure where they could do their own thing, um, but this all three of those bands really for me embody a, a, a much broader idea of what it means to be punk.
3: And career-wise, the three of them um, they all build up in the mid '80s to where they're they're filling pretty large theaters their records are on indie labels but they're selling pretty well for the indie network and they're selling in europe and they all three uh travel across the atlantic but big black kind of is one of the first bands to break up because member is going to law school which became just a constant in the 90s and 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 i think people began to understand oh you know you don't have to devote your entire life to careerism uh to make valid art and and the butthole surfers sort of top out because you know for three four years there in the late 80s their their guarantees are going you know from six thousand dollars a show guaranteed up to ten thousand dollars a show and they start playing smaller arenas but they sort of reach a point where they just can't get any bigger on an indie label and then sonic youth threads the needle by signing with geffen and you described that their role in the commercial sense, like Geffen didn't expect Sonic Youth to sell records, but they did something much more important on the business side for Geffen.
0: Yeah. Uh, Sonic Youth were uh, a magnet band. I mean, they were so highly regarded and they were so well connected. Sonic Youth knew, you know, all the cool bands. Um, and they were also really great. Uh, they had great ears. They were, you know, great uh, informal, uh, basically informal a people. So, they would they would find a band like Nirvana or Dinosaur Jr. and maybe they would tour with them and, and encourage them and talk them up to uh, you know movers and shakers. So that was a that's a big secondary role of Sonic Youth, um, you know, besides just making um, you know truly unique and powerful music that showed that. Uh, you know that you could make a go of making truly unique and powerful music uh, again just an incredibly influential concept quite aside from the actual sound of the music so uh, yeah yeah sonic youth were yeah they were a a, a magnet band for sure uh, but it was you know sure it was interesting to to see what they did with the you know the increased uh, recording budgets and Things yeah,
3: like that. I mean they go on to a long career in the '90s, which um, I sort of tuned out on. But but you know Robert Christgau for one loves their later work, and lots of people do. And and so it's a totally respectable oeuvre that they continue to create. But mm. another band that you put in there, Dinosaur Jr. In some ways, is an odd band out. I mean they were on Homestead Records at first, and then moved to SST. So they were label mates with Sonic Youth and Big Black for a while. And my initial yeah,
0: reaction, Big Black was not on SST.
3: No, no, on Homestead
0: oh okay uh-huh.
3: yeah so sorry to jump that in but um yeah dinosaur starts on on homestead which uh was connected to the Dutch e- to east india hmm. um and and you know how to go there there for a bit in 85 86 i mean all these cool bands but and so my initial impression of dinosaur jr was to lump them in with sonic youth and and uh big black and and others but really they were more of a classic rock band in sheep's clothing as it were
0: uh y- yes um yeah I mean Jay Mascus uh, in my book you know talks about the influence of the Rolling Stones and you know how he wanted to make quote ear bleeding country <laughs> uh but again you know the um Dinosaur Jr came out of hardcore they yes. uh deep wound yeah they had a, yeah uh uh that that was the precursor band and you know uh so there was uh you know, a fascination with, uh, energy and volume. It was just kind of got, um, uh, you know, uh, corralled into a, you know, a, a new way of expressing that, that feeling. Um, but again, you know, a lot of, a lot of younger bands started out in hardcore and then found their voice. And, uh, I think one of dinosaur juniors, you know, one of the emblematic things about them that, that put them, them in the book is this idea that, um, a, a lot of kids grew up on classic rock and then found hardcore. And then once they f- matured artistically and personally, found some way of reconciling those things, the, the sound and energy of hardcore, the sensibility of that whole community merged with all the Neil Young and Rolling Stones records that they listened to uh, earlier. And so Dinosaur Jr. kind of
3: functions then as a bridge to Mudhoney in your discussion of the whole Seattle grunge scene, which mm-hmm. definitively merged those two. But one other thread that comes out of Dinosaur Jr. is Lou Barlow, who sort of um, abused child is too much, but he's he's definitely the redheaded stepchild of Dinosaur Jr. and only got to write a couple songs. But he he launched a band, Sebado, that, that starts the whole lo-fi thing and is, you know... Precursor to pavement and, and so many other bands is that a big factor in including them as well
0: oh of course yeah I mean a, a lot of this book is um, you know explaining the the the, uh, the, the origin myths you know um, everyone not everyone but a lot of people in the music world know Steve Albini for instance um, but I part of the purpose of the book was to show you know how he became you know Steve Albini um, uh, how did Sonic Youth become Sonic Youth? uh uh um Ian Mackay you know uh, you know uh you know kind of a legendary character but people kind of know he's legendary but a lot of this book was uh you know the purpose of it was to explain well you know why what what are the foundation myths (laughs) that explain these people's positions in the world today so uh that's that's a lot of what that was about
3: yeah and then and then you know you get Fugazi in there which is Makai's second band and he brings in Guy Picado who had been in a band called Rights of Spring mm. which um at the time I saw them as sort of a, just a DC version of Husker Du but in retrospect they're the founders of emo core and and a whole big 90s genre uh, can be dated starting with Rights of Spring but th- they come together in Fugazi and, and the DC scene had sort of stayed insular through most of the 80s most of those bands didn't tour they would they were putting out records on discord people were discord and people were paying attention but um you know there were different bands brian baker had a second band and i'm blanking on the name they put out an album we got It dinko's um th- dag nasty yeah dag nasty of course that um you know was an attempt to synthesize sort of a cross between what became pop punk and and Fugazi. Mm. Uh, But their singer goes off to kibbutz in Israel or graduate school. I can't remember which and and (laughs) drops out, but Fugazi Mm. manages to break through nationally. They're touring, but they stay on discord. They limit their shows to $5 uh, maximum thing. And so talk a little little bit about how Fugazi charted their own path and never did compromise with the major label system. Uh,
0: They didn't. Yeah. They never did compromise, I guess because they didn't have to, Uh, you know, they, uh, they were selling lots of records and filling, (laughs) uh, shows and they they just simply didn't have to, um, uh, I, uh, yeah, they, I don't know. They did it their way Uh, a long time ago, um, maybe 1991 or so. I, I called Ian and asked him if he'd be interested in, um, uh, being interviewed for a feature in Rolling Stone. And he said, Yes. And I said, uh, oh, great. And he said, but just one condition. Um, we uh, th- That issue of the magazine can't have any cigarette uh, or alcohol advertising. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, God, what a genius thing. That was so brilliant. And uh, yeah. that really made a huge impression on me. Uh, but, you know, no, they didn't have to. And, you uh, you know, uh, charging five bucks was a very shrewd thing. You know, th- you could say, well, they could have charged more, but maybe they would have sold less tickets. You know, maybe they they made up for it in volume. And uh, whatever the reason, people got to see one of the greatest rock bands, you know, in my opinion, ever. Those shows were ex- explosive.
3: They, they certainly were where I got to see him on their first uh, tour of the U.S. in Austin. But let's hear a couple of seconds of Fugazi's waiting room. the first song on their first dp which exploded through college dorms uh in the late 80s in the same way that you know guns and roses and jane's addiction and the the butthole surfers were at the same time and and yet they they you know turned down major label offers and and charted their own path but another band that comes along is mud honey which is your cho- choice to represent the sub pop scene which is perfect for this book because unlike nirvana and soundgarden they never had a major label breakthrough and yet for a while in the late 80s they were kind of the flagship band on sub pop and were selling a lot of records and and packing big shows and were big in england
0: mm-hmm. yeah and that uh you know that helped promote the entire seattle scene uh to the the entire music industry because those english music papers were incredibly influential at the time everyone in the you know in the music biz uh, over here in the US, read them and paid close attention. If that was a great validation, it was, you know, and it's kind of ironic that the American music industry had to look to, you know, English people to validate <laughs> their own music, but that's that's the way it was.
3: And then the last band you put in there is Beat Happening, which um, is a pretty prescient choice. I mean, I guess you had the perspective of a decade to see, but they were involved in this scene from Olympia, Washington all through the 80s and they always seemed way way out there. I mean, their music was incredibly primitive and lo-fi. Their vibe was so you've got a great story in there about Beat Happening opening up for Black Flag and Calvin Johnson's Affect, which you 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 call them the band that made cardigan sweaters safe for the hard- hardcore scene. And yeah. Calvin Johnson's presence and affect is so alarming to Henry Rollins, the singer of Black Flag, that he's a little heckling and even gropes Calvin Johnson at one point. Um, Talk a little bit about Beat Happening and and what they represent in terms of how the underground moved on into the future.
0: Well, uh, you know, I was talking about how certain bands, you know, uh, were punk rock, even though they didn't sound punk rock. I mean, Beat Happening is a really... Ultimate example of that, it, like you say. I mean, it's it's very musically crude. It's usually drums and guitar, and 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 Calvin Johnson's very uncertain, uh, but and yet a very affecting uh, baritone. Um, but you know, there's a lot of kind of dark undercurrents in the in the lyrics that that kind of brush up against the music, and the, the music is kind of goes back to very basic kind of Buddy Holly you know meets surf music you know very basic stuff um but it's like you say calvin johnson's affect was extremely provocative he he would just kind of shimmy and rub his belly and mess up his hair like he's a little child but he was you know he was well into his 20s uh and acting like he is maybe a you know six-year-old boy and that just drove people bananas they opened uh for fugazi once in i think recita california and uh and um, the audience, even the Fugazi audience, could not handle Beat Happening. And they started throwing things at them. And at one point, someone hits Calvin Johnson, the singer, smack in the face with an ashtray. Bloodies his nose and there's blood streaming down his face. And he kept singing. He finished the set. Was like he, They were halfway through the set. He kept, just kept singing. And uh, at the end, when they were done, he just stepped off the front of the stage, walked right through the middle of the crowd which parted to let him pass. And that's pretty damn punk rock.
3: I'm and, so glad but you again, picked that they didn't anecdote. Sound like,
0: they didn't sound like the Sex Pistols.
3: <laughs> no, no. But that's the perfect anecdote, I think, that, that encapsulates the power of beat happening and, and what they were doing. And then, you know, I think, as you point out in the book, that they're the the connecting tissue to the Riot Girl movement of the 90s.
0: Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, th- that whole Olympia scene, yeah, was the, the, the cradle of that movement. And, you know, part of, part of the reason, I mean, well, a big part of it was the, the actual people who started it, um, um, like Toby Vale and, and Kathleen Hanna and all the rest. But uh, another part of it was that environment that, uh, that Calvin Johnson and Beat Happening and the K Records people uh, fostered in Olympia, which, again, you know, that's a, that's a small city um and it's it's uh, a small city in a, a very you know uh, obscure state at the time and yet this extremely powerful idea basically came out of this place and again that's one of the big ideas of the book is that really really cool important art and ideas can come from anywhere it doesn't have to come from it doesn't have to be validated by coming from new york or los angeles there, there are people everywhere with great ideas
3: and and Yeah, I'm so happy that we managed to race through and and at least touch on every band. But I have to ask you this. This has been bugging me. And every fan of this book, like everybody has 10 bands that they would have included and want to argue about. But I've got two that I just want to hear Mm -hmm. why you didn't include them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's uh, The Bad Brains and Naked Ray Gun. Um, uh,
0: Bad Brains, uh, for the most part, uh, uh, preceded the time frame of the book. Um the uh uh I forget what the the earliest stuff was pre eighty one. Yeah, Band in DC
3: and the, yeah. the Roar cassette.
0: Yeah. So that um, you know, and, and I was aware of how how important they are, but um and I I, tr- I paid them, you know, made sure to pay attention to them in the minor threat chapter. So, you know, it's not like I, I wrote them out of history. It's just A, they didn't fit in the time frame and uh B, I, I did uh I did uh draw attention to them.
3: Absolutely. And Naked Reagan, uh, similarly, you talk about in the big black chapter. And mm-hmm. so now I'll throw two more at you. I'm going to cheat while I've got you. But the Me Puppets were another one. And you, you talk about them uh, in the SST chapters. They're par- mentioned repeatedly in the Who's Could Minutemen Black Flag uh, chapter. So I get that one. But what about the Misfits? Why didn't you include them? Were they a predate thing as well?
0: Uh, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: All right. Well, yep. That's, yep. I can't argue with any of that, Counselor. I'll have to quit you um, <laughs> <laughs> on those charges. <laughs> Thank you. So this is Michael Azarad. It's been great fun talking about Our Band Could Be Your Life, Scenes from the American Indie Underground, a classic uh, available on paperback and now out in audiobooks. Michael, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Oh, well, Thanks for having me on the show, Nate.
2: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com Follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast Nate will be back next week with the legendary Stanley Booth to discuss his masterpiece, The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com Our band Could Be Your Life is published by Back Bay Books and is out in a new audiobook edition. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com.